Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. You're in for a treat on this podcast. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Cassidy Jensen. Welcome to the podcast, Cassidy. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. Uh, Cassidy is calling in over the phone. She lives in Clovis, California with her husband. And it's my friend, Linda Goats-Davis, who introduced us. Linda, if you're listening, you're my um, childhood friend from the same street in Salt Lake. And you've been helping people uh, through your teaching profession and somehow know Cassidy and connected us. And I'm grateful when a listener recognizes they know somebody that has a story that may be helpful and connects me. That's the only reason I would know of Cassidy. But by way of introduction, we're going to talk about Cassidy being a survivor, a victim of being raped. And that is a brutal road that no one should have to walk. This happened while Cassidy was uh, in law school at BYU. And Cassidy has since written, um, she published her victim impact statement. And we'll link to that in the podcast. And as I read that a couple of times, Preparing for this podcast, I just felt an incredibly courageous woman who's been walking a brutal road that no one should have to walk through no fault of her own. But I recognize the trauma, the long-term trauma and the complexity of being, you know, a victim here. I could never fully understand Cassidy's road, so that's why she's on the podcast to talk about this. Cassidy grew up in American Falls, Idaho which is about 20 minutes from Pocatello. She's served a mission. She's a returned missionary, served in Cleveland, assigned to the Kirtland Visitor Center, some place that my wife and I have been to and loved that spot. She got her undergraduate in political science at Chapman in Orange County, California. That's another place that my wife and I love. We had our first child in Orange County. Now we live in Utah, but love Orange County. And then, as I mentioned, came to BYU um, graduated BYU Law School in 2019, and along with her husband, works at a law firm in Clovis, California, focused on family law, divorce, custody, restraining orders, and just helping people in complex situations. Is that an accurate bio? Is there anything I miscommunicated, Cassidy? No, I think that's pretty accurate. We don't have any kids, but we do have a puppy who is like our kid. So what kind of what kind of breed? He's half Shih Tzu, half Poodle. <laughs> I so can... he's he just he's a cute little teddy bear puppy with a ton of energy. So that is great. So let's just um, Cassidy, like some of my guests, kind of helps me with an outline, so it helps me be able to moderate a podcast to make sure that Cassidy's story is complete. We've got about eight points here. So let's just start, Cassidy. Let's start with background. Is anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you? Well, I think in the context of just painting a picture of, you know, who I was before I was raped helps, I think, kind of show the road it's been. Um, kind of like some of the things you talked about before I was raped. I, I had done my undergrad. I had served a mission. I was in my second year of law school. So I had, it was in the fall. So I had just started the second year. I had survived what everyone said was the worst part of law school, which was the first year. So I was feeling really good. 
um, I had done really well. I'd gotten great grades and I was dating my boyfriend, Tanner, who's now my husband. Um, and I would just say like that time of my life was like really good. And if I had to describe myself, I would say I was very, very confident. I was very optimistic. I, I believed in myself and I, I just had a lot of things going for me. I was excited about school. I was excited about the future and I was just a happy person. And that's kind of like the, the picture of where I was before I was raped. And, you know, if you had told me that I was going to get raped, first of all, I would never believe it. You know, you just don't think that's going to happen to you. Second of all, I never thought it would change so much the way that I felt about myself and felt about my life and my education and my possibilities and opportunities. It, it really impacted my life in so many different ways. And, you know, for me, I was someone who I never had struggled with depression. I had never struggled with anxiety. Um, I had never, I just hadn't, hadn't had to deal with any type of, you know, emotional suffering. And so getting raped really like completely flipped my world upside down. Talk about the job you were, as I read your victim impact statement, um, that's the impression I got is that everything was working on full cylinders, all your hopes and dreams. You'd had this mission experience. You're in law school, um, got that first year. I talk about the job you had lined up that then because of this, you just didn't feel that was possible. Yeah. So there wasn't necessarily, um, super specific jobs. I had had some job offers, um, kind of the way law school works is after, your second year, that summer is really important because where you clerk, if you do well, hopefully, they'll offer you a job for after you graduate. So when you're in law school, there's a lot of like pressure and a lot of focus on that second summer. And I had some internships lined up and I was in the process of interviewing for more of those internships and clerkships. And that, and I got raped kind of right in the middle of that. And I ended up not even doing any clerkships that summer. Just like emotionally, I couldn't do it. I was barely able to like make it through school. So it felt like a big opportunity and a big like time of my life was kind of taken in that experience. And I, I kind of still feel like I'm playing catch up from the lost experience I didn't have. I'm obviously was lucky. Like I was lucky enough to make it through school and, you know, to pass the bar and to be practicing, but I'm not where I thought I would be. And it's been a lot more painful process than I thought it would be. Thanks for sharing that. And just helping all of us understand just the complete devastation of, of, do you like to be called a victim of a victim or a survivor? Help us understand vocabulary. Yeah. So for me, I prefer victim, you know, obviously some people prefer survivor and that's great, but I didn't like the aspect of like survivor to be always like insinuated that it was like over. 
and I feel like it's not over yet. Like I'm still surviving, you know, like I'm surviving getting raped, but I haven't like survived the process yet because it's still kind of ongoing. Um, and you know, in that case, I, I feel like I completely was a victim and that's, you know, on the person who raped me, not me. So you can call me a victim and that's great. Thank you. That's very helpful. I actually love the way you differentiated those two words and talk about how you're still a victim, even though he's in jail and you graduated from law school, we could all kind of wrap a bow around this and say, this is over and everybody move on, but it's not. And yeah, and that's part of the purpose of this podcast. Talk about, in this segment number two, what you'd like to share about the rape. Yeah, so for me, when I when I talk, I've been pretty open um, for like the last year and a half just about the fact that I was raped and what that experience has been like for me. But I've never found it like particularly helpful to talk about the details of it. I know sometimes people are curious and I'll have people ask me, but it's not like enlightening for me to like rehash the details of what happened. And I never feel like it's enlightening for other people to hear the details either. And for a long time, that's actually what kept me from talking about it is I, anyone that I did tell I was raped, the first thing they wanted to know was like, how did it happen? And I get that. I mean, I love like, you know, I'm a true crime podcast junkie. I love the true crime documentaries. So like, I get like you, we want the details, but it's really hard when you're the victim. Like if you do reach out to people and like what they want to know is those details and having to like constantly retell it and feel the shame again. And that's really hard. So for me, when I, I talk about my story, I really view my story as kind of everything that's happened since I was raped. You know, the day I was raped, I was raped by someone I didn't know. And it was kind of a unique scenario, but it was traumatic and, you know, horrible. I think all you need to know is you're raped. It's terrible. You don't want it. It's not something you ever plan on happening. And for me, that was, page one of the story, my story. And so I like to just focus on everything that's happened since then, because that's really my story. The rape is just like something horrible that happened to me. I love your answer there. Um, I wrote down the word boundaries. And I think as a victim, you have the right to set boundaries about your story and it's not my job to set those for you. So I love that you have this maturity and this perspective to say, this is a boundary. You know, people want to know more, but I don't, that's not helpful to me. And so I, I love the way you've created a boundary around that. I sometimes wonder if we want to know these stories to keep us emotionally safe so that we would think, well, that would never happen to me because we want to know why it happens So it sort of protects us and thinks, well, now I know that versus, and, and that makes it more about me versus what can I do to lift your burden? So I've always thought that, you know, what happened and how did it happen and what sort of infer that went wrong that you did, which you didn't do anything wrong. 
um, is more about me wanting to stay emotionally safe and say that couldn't happen to me versus me wanting to bear more in comfort. I don't know if that's true, but that's something I've wondered when I asked that, yeah. that question. I, I, I definitely think that's true. And that's, I remember talking to my therapist a lot about that. Um, after I was raped, it was just kind of a unique scenario. So it had ended up in the news and not only like the news in Utah, but within like a week or two, it was like all over the country. There were some articles from like out of the country. And so it just was like, it was kind of crazy. I mean, my name was never in any of the articles, but it was about me. And so I remember reading a couple, like there was one like in the Washington Post or like the New York Times. And I remember like reading it because, you know, if there's an article about you, you're just curious. Sure. And I remember reading, there was thousands of comments. And I remember going into the comments thinking like, people are going to be angry also that this person was like so horrible and disgusting and did this. And as I read through the comments, like my, my stomach just sank as like the comments were just 100% blaming me, you know, wow. saying that I wanted it, saying things like I was a prostitute or that I, you know, I was fine with it or that I was stupid or like, it was just terrible. And I would spend, like I spent months in therapy, just honestly trying to work through all of those comments and kind of had to come to that conclusion in my mind that people like they didn't want to understand it or they wanted to blame me because it's less scary for them. It's scarier to think that someone can just be horrible than it is to think, okay, well, she did something wrong and that's why it happened to her. So I had to just come to this understanding that those comments were more about them than they were about me. Great insight. Pretty brave of you to read those comments. Um, it was it was a terrible idea. <laughs> I mean, I regretted it. And my family was like, why did you do that? And I was like, I was curious. And now I wish I hadn't. But. Um, but I love what you said, Cassidy, less scary for them by making those comments than realize a completely innocent person this could happen to. So I agree. You know, I like that insight. Talk about um, just uh, your story helps me better understand how uh, being a victim of a rape affects so many other aspects of your life. And we're going to talk a lot about it on this podcast. Um, your relationship with God, um, relationship with school and work would be, so there's three there. Talk, where do you want to start on those? We can just dig into the relationship with God. Okay, let's... That's, I think, probably one of the biggest ones and been one of the hardest to navigate, so. Good, yeah. Tell us about that part of the story. So, kind of like we alluded to in my background, I would say I was really sh a really strong member of the church. I had really strong faith. I... Um, you know, I had served a mission. I was very active. I would go to the temple at least once a week. I would say I was just living what I viewed as like a, you know, me doing my best to live a righteous life. And you know, after I got raped, it, 
it was hard for a lot of reasons, but I initially thought, you know, I have the faith, I have the testimony, I have the strength that I will get through this, you know, the savior will help me through this and it will be bad, but it won't be that bad. That was kind of my mentality right after I got raped. And so, you know, the day after I got raped, I was actually doing a lot better than I was, you know, a couple of weeks after I got raped. Um, and I pretty instantly had an experience that kind of would shape a lot of, you know, how my faith and this experience meshed. And it was a couple days after I had been raped, I went to the temple and I went to the temple because I had just been through the most horrible thing in my life. And I went there to feel peace. Like I always had, you know, that's, that was my normal habit. Like you go to the temple for like safety, it's the sanctuary from the world. You feel closer to God. And I went there fully expecting that. And as I went in and I sat down, I just felt like overwhelming, like guilt and shame. And I felt dirty and broken and I had never had those feelings before, definitely not in the temple. And I just, I vividly remember sitting and just crying as I like looked at everybody else around me. And I just felt like I'm not like these people anymore. Like I I don't fit. And I, and I was having these very intense feelings of like, you're not, you shouldn't be here. You're not good enough to be here anymore. And it didn't necessarily make sense because I obviously didn't choose to get raped and I, I didn't do anything wrong. But in that moment, I just had these, these feelings of like guilt and shame. And in my head at the time, how I processed those, all I could think was what I'd been taught throughout my life that, you know, if, if you're not worthy to be around the savior, you wouldn't want to be around him because you wouldn't feel worthy to be like, you wouldn't feel good. And this was the first time in my life where I was really feeling like, I don't want to be in here. Like, I don't feel good right now. I feel really bad. And it kind of instantly started turning something in my head that it's because I wasn't worthy to be there anymore. And as, as I left and as I kind of continued, um, down the road of getting raped and dealing with religion and, you know, my relationship with God, that feeling of feeling unworthy kind of stayed with me. And I would say that experience shaped a lot of how I felt, you know, within the church and within my relationship with God on a personal level. That's a pretty honest segment right there, Cassidy. I wrote down a phrase you said, I'm not like these people anymore. Um, uh-huh. I feel dirty, broken. It's a pretty honest feeling about how you're feeling because of it sounds like in your brain you recognize that you're a victim and it was this was outside of your agency. But in spite of that intellectual sort of understanding of what happened, there's this emotional or the spiritual part of you that's deeply wounded. And going to the temple, which has been your balm of Gilead, turns into just the opposite. And how yeah. complex is sort of opening the door to the complexity of this situation for you. 
um, because you're thinking that would just be the balm of Gilead, and now it feels different. Yeah. It was a really challenging experience, and and I kind of it's it kind of set me on this not path of questioning, but similar to that because prior to that experience, I hadn't felt like it was my fault that I got raped, and you know because I got raped, I had talked to the police, and I was very lucky because they believed me, and you know my my family believed me, my boyfriend believed me, and it was all very reassuring that I hadn't done anything wrong. So my first experience feeling like I did something wrong was probably that day in the temple when that's first, I felt like, you know, I'm not worthy. Maybe this is something that I did. And I kind of started going through this process of, well, you know, maybe it partially is my fault and this stems back to right before I was raped. Um, like I said, I didn't know the person I who raped me. And before I went to meet them, um, I like said a very specific prayer that if there was any reason I needed to not be there or if there was any time I wasn't safe or I needed to leave, I prayed for the spirit to, you know, to tell me. And I had full faith in that. And... I never felt, I never had a prompting or feeling like I shouldn't be there or I should leave. And that was really kind of became a struggle afterwards. Like, why didn't he answer that prayer? Because clearly I shouldn't have been there. Clearly I should have left. This person had the only intention was to hurt me. And I didn't get a prompting. And so I started to first of all, really wonder like why I didn't. And in my head, there was two options. One, that God heard my prayer and just decided not to answer. Or number two, he heard my prayer and he wanted to answer, but I wasn't worthy to feel the spirit and get an answer. And where I was at, I, you know, why would I think that God wouldn't want to help me? You know, that's contrary to like anything I had ever been taught. So what made the most sense was that I just wasn't worthy to get a prompting from the spirit. And I kind of just internalized that and started to genuinely feel like, I mean, not that I deserved to get raped, but I wasn't good enough to get, you know, prompting to not go there. So I'm at least partially responsible. Like if I had been worthy, that wouldn't have happened. And I just started beating myself up about that, you know, to no end. I just felt like, well, if I wasn't, wasn't worthy to get an answer then, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not worthy for God to help me now. And if he, you know, didn't answer me then, like, why would he answer these prayers for help now that I'm struggling? And I think that kind of drove a wedge, I would say, between me and God, where I felt genuinely like I was not good enough to even pray to him. And that's a really lonely feeling, you know, especially when you're going through something so traumatic to feel like you shouldn't or can't even pray anymore. I'm just struck with your honesty and the complexity of the situation 
and your ability to articulate it. Um, I pray in my mind sometimes during these podcasts, I can ask the right questions and bring out the things you're learning. I, 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 you know, 10 or years, years ago, I probably would have given you a pretty simple answer of what, what, of what God's intent was there. But the older I get and the more stories I hear, the less I know exactly what happened there. Um, Uh I, but to validate the complexity of your situation, when your logical mind that's, you know, kind of goes into those two different options that God chose not to answer. And that to me, I don't quite, that's hard for me to understand because your own father um, obviously would do anything to protect you. Yeah. Um, and so the, the fathers that we know that would protect our daughters from a situation like that, if we extend that same thinking to a heavenly father who understands the situation you're about to get into through no fault of your own, and you offer this sincere prayer and you receive no prompting, that's just so different than the God that we believe in um, and the God that we've come to know. And so then, yeah, you go down the second option. Well, I wasn't worthy. And then that sort of when I meet people that go through that, they sort of reckon they go back on everything they've done in their own life and everybody can find things they've done that um, Uh are mistakes they've made. And they go, well, I'm just outside of God's promptings and I'm not good enough for God to help me. And it's on me. And then you start to, then you go to the temple and you feel, you feel these feelings and you feel different than other Latter-day Saints or other people that are having a different experience with God. Even church can become triggering because the God that is blessing and helping so many people and answering prayers. And we love to hear those stories. They build our faith. But in your situation, in the most important prayer you offered, I would say that protect you from the most awful thing that could occur to you, you didn't get an answer. And so what, where does that exactly. take you? And that takes you into a pretty tough spot. And I don't know that, except I don't know the answer anymore, <laughs> except I believe in God and I, but I recognize the complexity of your situation. And so that's, yeah. I think what we do is just sit with you in the pain and don't offer simple platitudes that sort of dismiss the complexity of your situation. Yeah. And that's obviously the most helpful thing because it is really hard. I found church triggering in that regard for a lot of ways. You know, you hear someone get up and you're, you're grateful, obviously that they're having these spiritual experiences, but you know, someone talking about how they prayed and found their car keys or, you know, like, whatever it is they prayed for and it's like hard because it's like wow like god cares more about you finding your car keys than he does about me not getting raped like what is the deal with that you know and that's like a real that's a real thing that i i still struggle with because i try to understand it and i try to come to an understanding of like why you know why did that happen and you know, there's times where you can say, well, you know, this is a human experience and God doesn't intervene in everything. And that makes sense. But then it just gets hard when he's intervening in things that like seem so trivial. trivial. And even in my own life, I can look back and be like, 
yeah, I think he helped me remember that answer on my midterm exam or helped me like, you know, find a parking spot when I was running late for something. And, and those like small moments of faith and answered prayers are, are great. And they were always really strengthening to me. But with this experience, it made it harder to, I would say, like to trust God because it's like, well, there's like no predictability when he will or will not answer, you know, because like that was crucial and he, and I didn't feel like he did. So if I step out of the zone where I'm blaming myself and I start saying, maybe there's a reason God didn't, it gets really tricky and makes it harder to trust him. So it's definitely, I feel like one of the hardest things I've ever had to try to understand and try to juggle. And I think one of the most helpful things for me has been just taking, you know, taking it like a hundred steps down from where I thought I was at spiritually and kind of starting from scratch with my relationship with God and trying to understand him and trying to feel like he understands me. And as time has gone on, it's been really important for me to feel like he loves me and not because I'm qualified for his love, but because like he just does because so much of the shame I felt was that, you know, I had, I was unworthy and I didn't deserve his help and kind of connected with that was that I didn't deserve his love anymore. And that's the most terrible feeling. So for me to have experiences where I can feel his love and it's not because I read my scriptures or went to the temple, but I feel like he just loves me. Those are, those are healing. And I've kind of had to let myself go with some of my expectations and let myself feel like it's okay to struggle at church or to be triggered at church and to not feel uplifted at church. Like that's okay for me right now. And it's okay that the temple right now isn't a place of like great peace. That's not a reflection on me. That's just kind of where I'm at with dealing with trauma and trying to navigate a very, very difficult situation. And those aren't, you know, signs that I'm unworthy or broken or not good in God's eyes. It's a great segment, Cassie. I don't have anything to add to that. I just recognize you have really good thoughts on this, and I I have more understanding of what, you know, I've never had a trust issue with God. I've always felt he's there, but I've never gone through the type of experience that you've gone through, and so I would recognize it would be seem very logical that you would have, not because of your lack of faith, your lack of goodness, or this seems pretty normal and almost predictable if, in some ways that this would lead to trust because we don't talk about a God that lets us down in fast meeting. <laughs> we, don't talk, yeah. <laughs> we don't talk about those sort of stories, the dark night of the soul to use language that some Mormon author, LDS author did, but we don't talk about that too much. And we celebrate mm-hmm. these stories of this loving God who answers prayers. And um, But often, you know, where is God? And, where, and how do we trust somebody that we don't know is always there and wasn't there in the most critical moment of your life? Yeah. And so... To kind of go off of that, 
I also, for me in this experience, I feel like we often celebrate like the victory. So, you know, you hear people who talk about like they went through a hard time or something challenging happened, but because of the savior, that burden was made light and they feel peace now. And those are kind of always the stories I heard. And those are great stories. And I'm obviously very happy that people, you know, who've gone through hard things have that experience where they feel, whether it's like losing a loved one or going through some kind of, you know, trauma like this, if they have that experience where their burden is made light, I mean, that's like incredible. And I'm very, I'm very happy for them. But I wasn't having that experience. And I wasn't feeling this sense of like, oh, my burden is being lightened. And that was another thing I thought must have been my fault. And I thought, you know, as I went through this process, as I suffered, you know, whether I was suffering emotionally or, you know, whether I was struggling with school or struggling with my relationships, whatever I was struggling with, I thought, you know, if I had enough faith that that struggle would be lifted and like that suffering wouldn't be as bad as it is. And I started equating the suffering that I was having in all these areas of my life with sinning. And I started to genuinely feel like, you know, if I had more faith, if I was better about reading my scriptures, if I was like better about praying, then I wouldn't be suffering how I am. You know, I wouldn't get triggered so much and I wouldn't feel so terrible about myself and I wouldn't, you know, not be able to go to school and see my friends and function normally. And I I really felt like for a long time, like I was a sinner because of how much I was suffering from getting raped, which, you know, looking back to like, even myself, I'm like, that sounds ridiculous. Like, why would you feel like that? But because I, I had this expectation and the stories that we hear are these stories of it being lifted. And so when it's not being lifted, it's kind of like, well, what am I doing wrong to not have that happen? And I, I felt like it was, it was on me. And I, I felt like the need to repent and that I needed to like become better because I was causing all this, these problems in my life. And that's just so emotionally, first of all, just emotionally draining. And it's not, you know, I'm at a place now where I don't, I don't believe that anymore. And I know that I wasn't sinning. I know that I was just going through intense trauma. And as I'm still, I feel kind of in the midst of this in some aspects, I don't look at it like I'm sinning anymore. I just know like I'm suffering and, you know, that's not fun, but it's not because I'm doing something wrong. It's just a consequence of the horrible thing that happened to me. So for me, like being able to shift that mindset where like I no longer think I'm responsible for my suffering has been obviously just really important for my mental health, but it's also helped me in my relationship with God to not feel quite as much shame. Because instead of feeling like he's disappointed in me for not having the faith to be healed, I now view it as he's he's sad right along with me. 
He's sad right along with you. Uh I love that you acknowledge you're still suffering, but it's not because of sin. I think that's a good spot to be in. And so much of our narrative, cultural narrative, is sort of suffering and bad outcomes related to sin or not doing our best. And you've had a really bad outcome that I know in your brain you recognize is not your fault, but then rightly so when it's not lifted and you're still suffering. And, you know, I just recognize that it feels it's back on you and it's this whirlpool. Once you get in that whirlpool of sort of looking inward, um, and hearing stories that make you feel like it's your fault. It's just this whirlpool that it's really hard to get out of. Um, yeah, and it's, it's really difficult because the typical answers don't help. You know, like when I would talk to my husband or talk to someone about it, they would say, well, you just need to read your scriptures and keep praying and like do it consistently and go to the temple and be at church and like that's what's going to help. And I would try and like, that would almost like make it worse because I would feel that shame again. And I would feel like, it's like the cycle, like the thing that's supposed to help you is what's causing you to feel worse. And that's like really difficult. And we kind of don't understand that. And I never felt like I talked to anybody who would acknowledge that that's real and that like, yeah, it's totally possible that like church is causing, you know, more problems than it's helping for you right now. And so it's okay to kind of take a step back or, you know, I I didn't have kind of like a support that understood that aspect of it. And I think that's something that would have been helpful for me instead of just having the typical kind of answers to acknowledge that this is a difficult situation and there's, there's solutions that might be different. And that's not because you're like, turning away from God or walking away from the church or you're choosing to not believe anymore, but it's, you're trying to build like a a healthy relationship with the church and you're trying to do it in a way that's enlightening and spiritually uplifting instead of a way that's just tearing you down and triggering you and causing you to feel shame. As you were talking, I wrote down safe places that, we need to create safe places for people that are victims. Um, and, and they need, you know, and you need to help figure what those are versus us just saying what they are. Um, we might, we might think that auto automatically church scripture study, prayer, temple attendance is a safe place for you. But I think it's this sort of back to you having boundaries and you probably knowing the best way to navigate this and receiving I still believe personal revelation on how to navigate this um, and creating safe places for you to do that in a healthy way and, and recognizing the uniqueness of this. Um, I just, you know, I'm not your priesthood leader, but I, my overall impression, I said this before we got started is to trust you. I mean, if I were your priesthood leader, I would not give you any advice in this situation except to validate how you feel and sort of put, feel my support on your, you know, hands on your back figuratively saying, I trust you um, to navigate this the very best way you can. You've got a life experiences of mission and service and education and thoughtful relationships. And um, even though you're younger than me, I would say I don't 
I would just say, trust you on how to navigate this and go slow like you're doing. And I think you're doing a really uh-huh. good job. Um, and I think talking about it, like you've done in your victim impact statement that you put on your blog and in this podcast, I think there's a measure of healing that can occur as we create safe places for people to share their stories. And maybe there's a measure of healing that you're already experiencing as other victims reach out to you that are less far down this road and need someone like you, that there's a measure of healing um, that it, it helps you as you're able to help other people. Any thoughts on that, Cassidy? Um, I mean, I just totally agree with that. I, you know, so I didn't really speak out about what happened to me for like a year. I like the first time I, the first thing I did was like shared about it on Facebook. And that was exactly a year after it happened. And I mean, obviously I was just terrified because like, you know, what do people say in a scenario like that? But I was, I was shocked and like humbled by the amount of people who were willing to reach out to me who had been through similar experiences. And, you know, these people were all in varying like ages and stages of life and different stages of like their process of healing, but feeling like I wasn't alone and that there were other people who understood, you know, these, these different things I was feeling was really comforting to me and and like you said it's been really healing for me to feel like I can share in that with other people because there's just something about when someone can understand how it feels because you know the majority of people in my life they love me and they care about me but they they don't understand how it feels so it's it's incredibly comforting to know that other people understand it. You know, not that I ever want anybody to be raped. And I'm, you know, almost anytime someone shares a story with me, I, I still cry and I'm like devastated for them. But there's a sense of um, like a connection and a comfort in knowing that we can like understand each other. And I think there's something pretty powerful, at least for me in you know, talking about this, this process afterwards, you know, instead of focusing on the event itself, but focusing on like our life afterwards. Um, I was reading something recently and it, it really stuck with me. And, you know, someone, the guy was talking about how, like, you know, it's not like the event that makes us stronger. It's the way we like live with it. So for me, like, getting raped is like never going to be a positive thing in my life. It it never will. It's always a horrible thing that happened. And I would never say that getting raped made me stronger, but I would say that surviving everything after the rape has made me stronger. And, you know, that's the part of the story that I like, that's my story. And that's what I get to have a say in. And that's what I get to, you know, that's what I'm living with every day. And, and those victories and those losses and everything in between, you know, the bad days, the good days, the, the you know, spiritual journey, the, you know, change in my relationships, the change in, you know, career, like all of that, those are the things that make me stronger. And so when I look at it that way, 
and I share that with other people, like our shared experiences afterwards are what make us all stronger together. And having like the opportunity to speak with victims and survivors and other people who have been through this, it really, I think, makes that that period of like suffering and this period of healing that I've been through and I'm still going through, it makes it an experience that ultimately strengthens me. I love that. There's so much hope in what you just said. Um, but I'd be really reluctant to go- say that this comes back to your point about God. I mean, I could say, well, this is why God allowed this to happen, so you could help so many other people. <laughs> and I recognize uh-huh. that that may be very triggering for you, because it comes back to why would God, that's not fair. Um, why yeah. would, so I, is that It's okay? funny, because I mean, I get that like often, <laughs> you know, like even from like, you know, family and people who like, I know they have the best of intentions, <laughs> and I would never purposely try to trigger me. <laughs> and for them, it's I think like, it comforts them. Like, exactly. Okay, yeah, this horrible, this horrible thing happened to her, but it's okay because, like, look at all the good she can do from it. And I mean, I appreciate that way of thinking, but for me, there's times where that is triggering because it's like, I feel like I could have helped people and I could have done a lot of good in my life without also exactly. having to, exactly. You know, just the unfortunate thing is, you know, people see kind of see these positive things or if they hear me speak or speak out they're like oh you know like she's doing good you know even if she's had hard times she's doing good but the reality is like you don't see the nights where you cry yourself to sleep or the times that I've been like so depressed I've been suicidal or you know the depth of that suffering is just it's so like severe it's so intense that I think once you really see that, or if you even felt a fraction of it, you would never say, yeah, this is why God let it happen to you. Because it's like, even if I helped a million people, like those feelings of suffering are so terrible that it doesn't provide a justification for what happened. Um, it, you know, obviously it's, I love to help people. I'm like, that's all I want to do now. Like, I want to live the rest of my life helping other victims, but that doesn't take away from the fact that I've suffered greatly. I love that. And I recognize my statement that I kind of chuckled at. Is, oh, no, I mean, is, I, I laugh I, at it too, so I, don't worry. <laughs> and I know you did. and But I think it's to your point, I think it's an attempt to sort of put this in a nice box for me, put a bow around it, wrap it up, kind of cinch the bow tight, which sort of represents this experience is over, everything's fine, um, without sort of continuing to sit with you in the pain and the complexity and the difficulty of your situation, even as you're able to move on into a better spot. I love the way you're honest, where you still cry yourself tonight at sleep. I didn't say that right, mm-hmm. but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. We've got... I'm watching our time a little bit, and I've been asking more questions about that section of the podcast. I'd love you to talk about, um, I've been, a, some of our listeners know, I was a singles ward bishop, and sometimes people would open up about really complex things, and I had really no training to say the right thing or not to say the right thing, and I recognize at times I, especially as I've heard more stories, wish I could do some do-overs and go back to some of those first visits where complicated things were shared with me. 
uh, give us some, talk to local leaders, and this could really be anybody that's in a church position that someone opens up. It could be Relief Society President, Young Women's President. As you opened up with local leaders, before we went live, you said generally you had good experiences, but sometimes there were some comments that were difficult for you. Will you go through some of maybe some of the comments that were difficult, shared out of good intent, but actually were difficult for you? Yeah. So I think, you know, one that really stands out for me is a bishop who was great and he helped me in a lot of ways. But as I've kind of explained, I I was like suffering spiritually and I definitely didn't feel close to God and I didn't feel close to the Savior. And I remember I was meeting with my bishop one night and, you know, we were kind of talking about how I was doing. And right off the bat, he just said, I can only imagine how close you have become to the Savior through this and how, you know, you're able to understand him better and understand the atonement better. And, you know, the way that that's probably strengthening you. And like that, it hit me really hard and kind of caused a lot of pain for me because I did not feel close to him. I did not feel like I was, you know, growing closer and understanding him better. I felt like I was heading in the opposite direction. And, you know, I know my bishop didn't say that with any ill intent, but for me, it had kind of that shaming experience. Like, you know, this this bishop who I looked up to, who, you know, had helped me through this, he, and he knew everything that had happened. You know, he kind of expected this experience to strengthen my faith and to bring me closer. And so when I wasn't feeling like that, I just started thinking, well, I must be doing something wrong because that's the experience that I should be having. And I'm not. So, you know, that, that comment, um, you know, it's still stuck with me. And I, I think it kind of played a big role in how I felt. And I noticed after that, I didn't want to meet with him because I felt like I was disappointing him. And it kind of, I would say changed that relationship and changed my ability to feel like I could be honest and vulnerable with my Bishop to get help because it kind of came back to like, if I wasn't feeling that way, then I needed to change what I was doing instead of accepting that like, that's a totally okay way to feel, you know, like that's, I heard once that most people who go through, you know, a sexual assault or a rape, it either can like push you really close to God or can at least for a time take you away from God as it's, it's just really challenging. And I think acknowledging that, you know, if it does kind of, I don't know, say like push you away from God or kind of challenge that relationship, that's not, it doesn't have to be a negative thing it can be an opportunity to like reevaluate and rebuild that relationship down the road as it becomes, you know, comfortable for you. But, you know, it's okay that we like all, we respond to traumatic situations differently and it's not necessarily in a, the most, you know, expected faith building way. And I think as like a Bishop or a leader being open to the fact that, 
you know, people who are going through something really hard, they can have a variety of, you know, experiences and feelings. And that doesn't mean that they're trying to look for excuses or, you know, like for me, when even when I would bring up questions about like, why did this happen? Why didn't he answer my prayers? When those questions were kind of like shut down and disregarded. And I, a lot of times felt like people thought I was trying to come up with issues with the church or I was trying to find doubts that would just shut me down further because those are serious questions. These are serious issues. And, you know, an experience like getting raped or sexually assaulted, it's a very traumatic experience. And so I think the best thing leaders can do is are, is validate that and acknowledge that it's really hard and acknowledge that we can handle it differently. And our, you know, our spiritual healing will be different for each of us. And it's not as cookie cutter as, you know, reading the scriptures and just keep going to church. And I think what could have helped me the most was having leaders who were really open to that and kind of aided you in healing the way that was best for you, not the way that's easiest for them. I love that. Um, that's a very good segment. And I've learned that I've learned that's kind of a leading question that you were asked. And I do that with my own children sometimes, but I, I think a, open-ended non-directional questions are better questions to ask. So, um, cause that, inf- you know, you know, if I guess if I were to ask about your relationship with the savior, I would sort of try to create space that I recognize that something like this trauma creates complicated feelings towards relationship with God and the savior for some victims. Um, sh- if you're okay, share with me how you're feeling about the savior and about okay. God and, and sort of in my preamble, I sort of create space for both ways of feeling. <laughs> and then, yeah. and, and I, and neither of us are trying to be critical of anybody. Cause I've, I'm the first to recognize I would often ask a question of a YSA that's a leading question like that is, is sort of inferring the outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about, talk about your family. Um, and, you know, you've got a boyfriend during this process, Tanner, who becomes your husband. Just talk about how the rape impacted your family relationships. Yeah, so I mean, I think obviously the most important relationship at that time was with Tanner, who, you know, he's been amazing throughout this whole process. We, you know, we were just dating. And, you know, within a year of me getting raped, we went from dating to getting engaged to getting married. And, we did that while going through a lot of really hard stuff. That was a really, really hard year. So I'm still grateful for the fact that like he did not run away because it was a lot to handle and he's taken it all and he's loved me and helped me along the way. And, you know, as has my family, um, my little brother who I actually was living with him because he was a BYU student at the time And so we lived together. And so he was also a huge help to me. But ultimately, you know, I didn't expect getting raped to have an impact on, you know, my relationships. But it it really did in the sense that 
getting raped made me feel so terrible about myself. And I felt like I wasn't a good daughter or a good girlfriend or sister or friend. And in a sense, it kind of made me shut down in those relationships at times. And I would just feel like, you know, I'm, I'm especially with, you know, Tanner, a lot of times I would feel like I'm not good enough anymore. I'm not, you know, why does he love me? How can he love me? Why should he love me? And that can be really detrimental um, to any relationship. Just, you know, when you constantly feel like you're not good enough and that was absolutely nothing that they were doing. That was just the reality of what I was going through. And in that reality, there's a lot of triggers and, you know, over the years, I've realized like my triggers are very unpredictable. You know, I can be like at work or at school or I can be totally fine. And then two minutes later, I'm like crying for six hours and nothing can help. And, you know, that's been really, you know, a challenging aspect of a relationship because I know as I've like talked to Tanner about this over time, a lot of times he he felt like he would cause me to get triggered and you know it, it might seem like that because maybe it's something he said or it was something we were doing but the reality is in those relationships like you know I'm vulnerable with him and I love him and I care about him and I'm with him all the time so it's only natural that things that happen between us will trigger you know some of my past experiences with getting raped or they'll trigger those feelings of insecurity or, you know, just trigger the variety of things that I struggle with. And in, in maintaining a good relationship, it's been very important to, for both of us to understand like those triggers aren't because of him and they're not necessarily even because of me, like they're because of the rape and the way it plays out um, is something we have to go through, but it's not because of us. And that's been a, a difficult part, you know, of, you know, I feel like being newly married is difficult in a lot of ways and, you know, graduating and moving and doing all of that, but kind of dealing with all of the emotional stuff with the rape, that's, a, that adds a lot of a burden to a relationship. It's a good, good segment there, and great thought and good thoughts. And um, just be honest. What did Tanner? You know, if there's other Tanners out there listening, who someone, a girlfriend, um, is a victim of rape, and they want to, they really care about the person. They don't want it to change the relationship, and potentially still marry this person. What did? What advice do you have for the Tanners? of the world. And I recognize males that sometimes are victims of rape or sexual assault. And yeah. so it doesn't necessarily, I mean, there could be women that are like Tanner trying to help um, a male victim in a relationship. Any advice for the Tanners of the world? I think my number one advice, which I know is extremely difficult to do and especially for males, but to just not try to fix it. And I think a lot of the frustration and hardship comes because especially when you love someone, you feel like it's kind of your job to fix it. And I know that, I know that my husband struggled with that because, 
he loves me so much and he like he hates seeing me upset he hates seeing when I don't feel good about myself or you know when I'm crying or when I'm just in like a dark place he hates that obviously and he a lot of times you know wants to fix it and sadly and unfortunately a lot of times when you try to fix people's problems like it doesn't help it kind of almost makes it worse because me as a victim it would almost make me feel more broken because I would see him trying and I would see it fail and then I would feel like wow like now I'm so messed up like he can't fix me and he feels bad because he can't fix it so now not only am I sad but now I've made him sad and like this spiral situation for us and for me especially like the most comforting thing and I'll share like a little experience it was not too long after I had been raped but there was this time where like I was just like devastated I was just crying because I was like it was just you know I was just suffering and Tanner just sat with me and like Tanner started crying and he just like sat there and cried with me and that was like the most comforted I had ever felt because in that moment I felt like he's not trying to fix it he's not trying to like you know change my mind on how I feel like it he just gets it like and it it hurts him too and he understands that I'm suffering and I'm not suffering alone and that that moment like I mean I'll never forget that moment and there's been times since obviously that I've had you know feelings like that but that helped me far more than you know any what I would say like logical way to help me or you know talking to me about stuff just sitting with me like not that he has to cry every time but if he just even sits with me and lets me cry it out, it goes a lot better than trying to like talk me out of why I'm crying or why I'm struggling. So I think in a relationship, I would say the best thing you can do is, you know, just be there with them, you know, follow their lead, but don't worry about fixing them because the thing is you really, you can't fix it. And the sooner you get rid of that burden on your own back as you know their their spouse or you know significant other as soon as you get rid of that I think it allows for a a better relationship because you're not carrying an unnecessary burden anymore you're available to just be there with them and that's what they really need I love that Tanner if you're listening that's what a tribute to you and the good yeah, man and good husband that you are. Yeah, he's a great husband. And, you know, he's, I couldn't have done any of it without him, like, at all. So, you know, he's been there for me in every way. Um, one more thing I would add to that was something that my little brother said. Um, someone was talking to him about this, and it had been maybe like a year and a half since I had been raped. And they had asked him a question, like, so would you say that like, you know, you're kind of you healed from it because, you know, the people immediately around you when you're raped, you call them secondary survivors because, 
you know, they're going through a decent amount of trauma also. Like, they didn't go through the event, but they're seeing, like, the impact on, you know, someone they love life. And that can be, you know, emotionally exhausting and traumatic for them. And when this person asked my, my brother, like, how, if he felt like he had healed, his response, like, to me is, like, one of the most comforting things anyone said. And, like, I just think was an incredible way to view it. But he said, it's not about, like, if I've healed, it's about Cassidy. And he said, for me, what I care about right now is, like, how Cassidy's doing. So if Cassidy's over it and she's happy and she doesn't want to talk about it, then that's where I'm at. But if Cassidy's angry or frustrated or mad again, then I'm right there with her. And he explained that it, you know, it didn't matter if it was like a year or five years, like he was going to be where I was. And, you know, that's not to say he hasn't, you know, gone through his own, you know, healing with it and that he can't, you know, continue to like feel great himself. But just knowing that there's people in my life who it doesn't matter if it's 10 years after I got raped, if I'm having a bad day, they'll listen and they'll sit with me in it and they'll, you know, kind of carry that with me. And that's really comforting because as a victim, I kind of felt like there was like a timeline, like you reach a certain point and like people don't want to hear about it anymore and you shouldn't be dealing with this anymore. And, you know, these expectations and I've seen how that's just not realistic. You know, I don't, I certainly don't plan when I get triggered and I don't plan when it kind of starts becoming an issue again, but knowing that there's people who aren't going to judge me for that, but they're willing to like hop right back with me is so comforting. So this, I would say this idea of just being willing to go where they are, you know, if there's a victim in your life, be willing to like, sit with them where they're at, that's the most comforting thing. Like whether it's recent or when it, whether it's been a while, because the healing for me comes and like the comfort comes in feeling like they're willing to be where I'm at and that I don't have to be there alone, no matter how much time has gone by. What's your brother's name? Um, his name is Colin. Uh, Colin, if you're listening, that of all the things you've said, for some reason, that brought the most tears to my eyes so far in this podcast. It's not about if yeah. I've healed. It's about if Cassidy is healed. What a thoughtful comment from your brother. Yeah. And I wrote down the word God. Because I, the God I believe in, that's, that's a human God that feels human emotion. I think sometimes we create a God that is not human and wouldn't feel pain and sadness and mm-hmm. emotion. I hope that that's, that's my belief as God feels like Colin. I'm not healed. I'm not over this. I'm not stopping mourning for Cassidy until she is. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that Colin is willing to sit with you in your pain and everybody else, Tanner and others. Um, yeah. And to me, I look at our baptism covenants um, in Mosiah 18, when Alma went to the waters of Mormon and invited people to, bab- to baptism, he didn't start with what I call the vertical component of our baptism command, 
covenants, which is commandment keeping in relationship with God. He started with, are you willing to bear? Are you willing to mourn and comfort? And to me, that's the horizontal aspect of our baptism covenants that goes sideways to other people. And it's so key to our journey on this earth life is to bear, mourn, and comfort. And um, I love that. We've got about, it's Sunday, we're recording this podcast, listeners, on a Sunday morning, and I've got family Zoom church in about 10 minutes, so I, I usually don't have a, I usually don't have a hard ending point, but in this last 10 minutes, I'd love you to talk about the criminal trial, if, or whatever last, whatever time you want to take on any segment, but as I read your victim impact statement, you, it's a bold statement, and a bold in a great way. Um, you asked for the maximum penalty, if that's the right term, maximum term, maximum um, for mm -hmm. um, this criminal. So I don't know if you want to talk about why you did that. I thought that was the right thing to do or anything else about the trial and sort of being yeah. re-traumatized as the trial got delayed and you kind of had to reprove your pain. I've just learned that we need to just honor people's pain. They don't have to reprove it or re-justify uh -huh. it, it just as re-traumatizing to them. So go ahead. Yeah, so that is kind of a very, the whole process was interesting. I mean, the police were involved, you know, right from the beginning. And I was, I consider myself very lucky to have been believed and to have, you know, them pursue that course of justice for me because so many victims don't have that experience. Like, you know, they don't have the support. They don't have people who believe them. So in that regard, I felt very lucky. But it also is probably one of the hardest things I've had to go through. And I would say it caused me just so much pain and suffering. Um, you know, it was over two years from the date I was raped until we had the trial. And in that time, I think there was like for, you know, the trial was moved four times. There was a mistrial. And in most of those times, it would be the day before or two days before the trial started that they would move it. And I think the process of preparing for, you know, a trial where I have to testify about, you know, what this person did to me in detail is a very emotionally excruciating experience. Um, when I look back, some of the, the darkest times have been around the times of the trial and to have it be moved each time kind of just felt like people didn't care. You know, they didn't understand how hard it was for, for me as a victim to not be able to move on with my life because I couldn't, you know, in the back of my head, it was always there and you you couldn't really work through and move on from the experience because you were still living it. And I felt like I couldn't heal from my trauma because I was still undergoing this trauma. And there was this like future date of a trial, which was bound to be traumatic in some sense. And that became kind of an unexpected process and experience. And part of this, that was so difficult. Um, you know, for it to last for a very long time, there was many times that I wanted to just give it up and say, like, I just want to move on with my life. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with this anymore. You know, 
I need to have some control of this process. Um, but I was, I was really grateful. There, there was actually one other girl who's a victim and we were able to meet for the first time at the trial after we testified. And I would say probably the most powerful, um, kind of moment of my entire life was meeting this, this girl who we were, I mean, I hadn't even known her name before, but we were both kind of fighting this together. Um, you know, she lived in a different state. I lived in a different state, but we both, you know, we, neither of us gave up um, in kind of pursuing the justice of this. And I think we both strengthened each other. And after we, we testified, um, like the first moment we met, we just hugged and I just cried and I had never felt like it was a feeling like I, I knew her. And I think it's because we had, you know, both been sharing in the burden of this trial and this burden of seeking justice and the emotional toll that that was taking on us. And, you know, we were, we were both able to testify and, you know, thankfully um, a jury found him guilty. And, you know, that was, I guess, you know, kind of a happy ending, but there's just so much pain in the experience. Um, after the trial, I had someone ask me, um, in fact, it was someone who had actually been a victim in something similar. And they, they said, you know, tell me about it. Cause like, that's all I've ever dreamed of was like this justice. And, you know, as I thought about it, it was, it was great to feel justice. And for me, it was the, the best feeling was knowing like he can't hurt someone else now, but it didn't heal me. You know, the healing is, is far beyond that. And the experience has been very challenging and an experience that, you know, surprisingly didn't bring a lot of healing. The healings come in a lot of different ways. Um, but the, the victim impact statement you've talked about, I gave that back in February. And so for the first time, you know, I was raised in, I, I think, 2017. Yeah, October of 2017. You know, so in February 2020, that's the first time that this is kind of finished. And that that chapter's over. And that's, it's a long time to live with it kind of ongoing and to deal with, you know, all of the, the pain that that brought. And so the past couple months have been, been pretty incredible for me feeling like that, that chapter that's closed and this is now my experience and I'm in charge of my healing. I'm in charge of what I choose to let go and what I choose to, to move forward with. And that's, I don't know, I've, I lately, as I've thought about it, I'm, you know, I'm really grateful to have it over <laughs> because it was a, a heavy, heavy burden to carry. But at the end of the day, I, you know, I, I won't say the other victim's name, but she's become just one of the like dearest friends to me and someone I know that will always like be a huge part of my life because we, we like rocked, we walked that very challenging, terrible road together and we were able to like, 
you know, make it out the other side. And it's quite an experience, but I mean, I would definitely encourage people to, to go read my victim impact statement as I kind of dig into some of those things. And it kind of paints a comprehensive view of what rape does to someone. Tell our listeners how to get, we'll link it in the podcast copy listeners so you can find it there, but tell them how to listen to it, how to find your blog. Yeah. So I have a website. It's called weallhavelight.com. And if you go to that, there's a blog section. And the name of the blog is um, A Letter to My Rapist and What I Deserve. So if you just go to my website, weallhavelight.com, then you can find it from there. I love the name of that website, Cassidy. Um, I'm going to make a comment, read a statement, and then I'm going to turn it back to you for any final things you'd like to share with our listeners. But uh, my frequent guests know that I read this quote a lot. Um, It's from Henry Norwin, a Catholic priest, and he talks about a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded about the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. And so I recognize your unique life ministry, Cassidy, is a wounded healer, terribly wounded person, through no fault of your own. But you also, and I I don't, I back to God's role in this, I'd be uncomfortable saying God caused this to happen, so you could be a wounded healer, but given the realities of what's happened, you've turned into the wounded healer um, because you're able to authentically lead others out of the desert because you know the desert. And I think that's part of your beautiful life mission, and I deeply admire you being willing to talk about it, write about it, um, because there's so much stigma around the word rape and about being a victim that it just adds to the shame. And I'm hoping that with brave people like you stepping forward, that future victims, I hope there aren't, but the pra- from a pragmatic perspective, they will, that they mm-hmm. they are de-shamed enough because we've created a better narrative that when this happens, they would potentially go to the temple and not have some of these feelings that logically came to you with the shame and the broken, um, because yeah. they've already been taught as a young woman or a young man about rape and about how we should process that. And we talk about it at church in our culture and and sort of, um, I don't know what the right vocabulary is, sort of um, backs, and that's not the right word, but sort of create better tools in people um, before they become a victim, if they indeed become a victim. Um, so that's what your part of your life ministry is from a professional mm-hmm. standpoint and kind of this off-the-record ministry of people that will just reach out to you. And I love something else you said in that last segment. You says, I am in charge of my healing. Um, I love that statement, Cassidy. I love that statement. To me, there's so much, you're, that's so emboldened, that's so empowering. I love that. It's not angry or rebellious. It's just say, I'm in charge of my healing. And I love where you are on that. So those are my last couple comments, just and deep admiration for you, for who you are and um, your ability to communicate this really painful story in a really wonderful way and just your life ahead of you. And um, you're going to help and heal a lot of people. And I deeply admire you. And on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you so much. But 
we'll turn it back to you for any other final comments. I'd just like to end by saying to anyone who has gone through something similar or who is currently going through this, or even if you know somebody who's going through something similar, please reach out. If you go to my website, which is weallhavelight.com, which also will be linked to this podcast, there's a tab where where it says reach out and you can send me an email. And I would love to hear from you and I would love the opportunity to help you in any way that I can. There's also some additional resources and some additional blog posts where I share some more aspects of my, my experience. So please visit my website and please, please reach out if you've had any inclination to do so, because I would love to help in any way that I can. And lastly, to anyone who's suffered or suffering from something similar, please know that you're not in this alone. There are many of us who are surviving this, and we might as well all do that together. So thank you to everyone who has listened, and I appreciate you being open-minded and willing to listen and learn. And thank you to Richard for allowing me this opportunity to share my experience. That's great. On behalf of all of our listeners, this is Richard Osler thanking Cassidy Jensen Um, an honor to host this podcast. It's sort of sacred ground when someone like Cassidy comes on and shares her story. So Cassidy, we are so grateful for you. We love you. We send you our love and support and your good family. And thank you, our listeners. This is Richard Oster signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. (laughs) 